Now, when it comes to the doctrine of water baptism, there's a great deal of confusion which can be seen in all of the conflicting concepts about the correct way to accomplish this spiritual sacrament. And, and just to give you a few examples here, you know, there are some churches that, that teach that infant baptism uh, is something that we should observe. And, and then, then there's a, two different camps there. there. There are those who believe in infant baptism as something that is necessary for salvation. And then there are those who uh, believe in infant baptism, but it's not necessary for salvation. So, for example, uh, you know, those who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, well, th- that church teaches that infant baptism is, is necessary because that's what they believe removes the stain of Adam's sin. Uh, whereas if you go to uh, more of a uh, uh, Episcopalian-style church, you know, then you might find infant baptism as something that's not necessary for salvation and yet still offered. I'm still looking for any verse that would justify infant baptism at all. have yet to find that verse. But, uh, and yet there are still churches that teach this. There are churches that teach that adult baptism is necessary for salvation. For example, uh, if you know anybody that goes to, say, like uh, the Mormon church or, uh, or, or the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or the Church of Christ, you know, these are churches that teach that adult baptism is necessary for salvation, which is why I believe that they all find themselves outside of the camp of Christianity. And I'll explain why as we make our way through this study. But then there are churches uh, like ourselves uh, that believe that adult baptism is important but not necessary for salvation. And, and with all these variations concerning the doctrine of water baptism, well, it becomes important for us to take some time to understand what we mean when we talk about this spiritual sacrament. And, and with this as the goal, we're going to break up this study into three basic parts. Or we're going to begin by first defining baptism. Uh, then we're going to discover what the Bible says about baptism. Then we're going to develop the method of baptism that we use here at Calvary South Austin. So with that, let's begin with defining what we mean when we say baptism. Now, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for people in the church to, uh, to conflate the words baptism and water. Uh, and, and oftentimes when people use the word baptism, what they immediately mean by that is baptizing into water. And yet it's important to understand that the word baptism in the original Greek, it simply speaks of submersion or immersion. And, and then there's a qualifying agent that we need to look for in the text to know what kind of baptism we're talking about. You know, so for example, John baptized in water, but Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there's three baptisms mentioned right there in the scriptures uh, and yet only one of them is into water. So baptism itself just simply speaks of submersion or immersion. And, and submersion, well, that word means to put something into something else or, or some, some sort of liquid uh, so that, the, the, that whatever's being submerged is entirely uh, immersed into that liquid. Uh, for example, uh, in order to make a, a, a pickle, you know, what do you do? You, you, you take a cucumber and you baptize it into vinegar. That's, that's right. Whenever you submerge cucumbers into vinegar, you're baptizing the cucumbers into vinegar. And let's be honest, cucumbers, gross. Vinegar, gross. Pickles, delicious. I don't get it. 
But there's something that happens through this baptism that makes both of these nasty things delicious. The word immersion also refers to something that's plunged into liquid until it's covered. And and in the context of water baptism, well, immersion refers to the way that the whole body of the individual is lowered into the baptism waters. And so, you know, there are churches that uh, argue that, you you know, infant baptism is something that's biblical, and yet they don't actually fully submerge the baby. And yet the word baptism means to fully submerge. But these are churches that don't fully submerge a baby, they sprinkle. And, and the word baptism does not mean sprinkle, it means to fully submerge or immerse. Now with all of this in mind, I want to take a moment to ask the question then, as we've defined the word baptism as that which is fully submerged into some liquid, the question we have to ask is this, is the sacrament of water baptism then necessary for our salvation. And so with that, let's take some time to discover what the Bible actually says about water baptism. And with this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 so that we can begin to discover what the Bible actually says about the sacrament of water baptism. And the reason why I'm taking you to the epistle here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is because we don't build church-age theology from historic narratives. Not to say that the historic narratives like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, these are historic narratives. And it's not to say that there's not doctrine in those books. But when it comes to the church age, we begin to build our theology from the foundations of the epistles, like 1 Corinthians. And so I want to know, what, does, what, what do the epistles tell us about this sacrament of water baptism? Well, with that, I'd like to consider here in 1 Corinthians uh, what the Bible teaches about this doctrine. And and with the question in mind, is the doctrine of baptismal regeneration biblical? And just to be clear, the words baptismal regeneration refers to the idea that you are saved through water baptism. So is baptismal regeneration something that is taught in the Bible? In other words, does the Bible require people to be baptized being fully immersed into water as a necessary requirement for entering into heaven. And if so, well, then this requirement of water baptism must be a part of the gospel message. You see, the gospel message is the message that helps us to understand how a person is saved. And if water baptism is necessary for being saved, then water baptism must be part of the gospel message. With that in mind, let's consider something that Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me there beginning at verse 14. Here Paul declares, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Consider that for a moment. Again, the gospel message is the good news, which helps us to understand how sinners can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And we're saved by faith as we receive God's grace 
and not by works, lest any man should boast. And if this gospel message were to be an envelope, we would want to open up this envelope and see what's inside the envelope, right? Would the contents of the envelope of the gospel message include the requirement of water baptism? Think about it. If water baptism is necessary for salvation, it only stands to reason that water baptism would be part of the gospel message. And yet Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, how can he say that if the message of the gospel includes the requirement for water baptism? Without debate, Paul's statement would make no sense if water baptism is part of the gospel message. So to sum that up simply, you know, Paul is here, here is assuring his audience that water baptism is not necessary for salvation. That's why he can say that Christ didn't send me to baptize, but rather to go preach the gospel. The apostle Peter assured us of the very same thing. And to prove my point, well, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 1 Peter, I just want to take a moment to point out that the verses that we find here in 1 Peter 3 can be a bit confusing because at, surface, at a surface reading, it would seem as if Peter is actually telling us that we're saved by water baptism. What he's saying here seems to suggest that water baptism is then necessary for salvation, and then you would have a conflict between Peter and Paul. And yet I believe if we take a close look at the point that Peter is actually making, we'll begin to see that they were actually on the same page entirely. To prove my point, if you would look with me here at 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to begin reading there at verse 18, because here Peter declares, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit." by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, whom formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Wow, a, a, a simple surface reading of this would lead us to think that water baptism is the way we are saved. And there are many who try to use this verse as, as a proof text for teaching the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. There are many oneness churches here uh, in the world who will insist that you must be water baptized in order to be saved, and they'll point at these verses as proof. And yet, as we take a closer look at Peter's point, we begin to see that this is not the case at all. First of all, we must not fail to remember that Noah and his family weren't saved in the water. No, instead, Peter here tells us that they were saved through the water. It's there at the end of verse 20. Eight souls were saved not in the water, but through the water. I'll remind you that the floodwaters... They were actually the judgment of God. God was pouring out his judgment upon this wicked world with this worldwide flood. With that being the case, listen, what happened to the people that got wet? They died. 
The, the people who got wet during the flood of Noah, they died because they were under the judgment of God. Could they have escaped the water? Yep. They could have gotten on Noah's boat. They could have gotten on Noah's boat and been saved from the flood waters. But they didn't believe. They rejected the preacher of righteousness, Noah. They rejected his message. And as a result, they were judged. Meanwhile, Noah and his family were saved and not because they got wet. No, they were saved after being sealed up inside the ark where they were safe and dry from the judgment water. Now, with all that in mind, I want to remind you here that according to Peter here, there is an antitype which was patterned after the story of Noah's ark. So what is this antitype which is patterned after the story of Noah's ark? Well, with that, let's take a moment to grasp this pattern here. And, and I want to remind you that the, that the water that flooded the earth was the judgment of God. And this is the, the judgment that God used to punish the unrepentant uh, sinners who then pe- perished there in the waters. And, and with that being the case, it only stands to reason then that Noah and his family represent those who are saved from the judgment of God. And then with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, then what does Noah's ark represent? To consider this antitype, or this Old Testament pattern, which was designed to reveal something to come, what does Noah's Ark represent? Well, with this question in mind, I'll remind you of something that Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3. There he declares, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christian, listen, when you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life was then hidden in Christ in some sort of spiritual way. And as we consider the way that the life of the believer then is hidden in Christ or with Christ in God, well, it seems to me here that the Lord Jesus then becomes this antitype of Noah's Ark, or, or you might say that, you know, uh, uh, the 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 concept of being hidden in the body of Christ is similar to Noah and his family being hidden there within the ark. What this means then is that the ark of Noah was actually a symbol which was designed to reveal the way that our Savior would then save us from the judgment of God. That's exactly what Peter is talking about when he lets us know that Baptism, water baptism, is an antitype, or it's, a, it's patterned after Noah's Ark. With that being the case, I can assure you that Peter wasn't trying to tell us that water baptism now saves us. No, instead, he's letting us know that water baptism is a symbolic sacrament which was initially revealed during the days of Noah's flood, and much like Noah who he and his family you know, were saved by, by the faith that they placed and the one who told them to, to, to build this ark and climb inside you know, with, with the same faith. You know, we too are saved by faith in Jesus Christ who was sent to protect us from the righteous wrath of God. The reason why is because now the life of the believer is hidden in God with Christ or by faith in in Jesus, so that we are spared from the wrath of God. We are spared from the punishment of God. 
Now, in order to further grasp the way that the sacrament of water baptism then is symbolic of our salvation in light of Noah's Ark, I want to consider something that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 6. As you make your way there to the sixth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the water is not only a symbol of God's judgment, but it's also a picture of death as well as the grave. Therefore, water baptism is designed to symbolize the judgment of death as well as our resurrection from the grave. When we are baptized into water, the concept is death into the judgment of God. And yet, coming back up out of the water is the symbol of rising to the newness of life. Why? Well, because our life is hidden in God with Christ Jesus. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 6. And so if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3, here Paul writes, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, as we read these verses, I want to assure you here that when, uh, when, when people come to get baptized this Saturday, uh, no one's literally going to die and be buried. Not again. I won't let it happen again. <laughs> No one's literally being baptized into death. We're talking about a symbolic death here. Paul is telling us that we're buried with him through baptism into death. That's the symbology of it. That when you're being dunked underwater, the concept is is that, that you're taking part in the death of Jesus Christ. And so I want to take a moment to consider the symbolism then of baptism beginning with this death of Jesus Christ. And and again, it's there in verse 4 where Paul tells us that we were buried with him through baptism into death. And from this we see that the act of submersion then is this symbolic death and and burial that that we're taking part, so to speak, in the the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And then there in the second half of verse 4, Paul uh, goes on to declare that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. The concept being that the person who rises up from baptismal waters is then symbolically rising up from the grave like Christ rose up on the third day. And now we've been called to walk in this newness of life. And so we see then that water baptism, it's this symbolic demonstration which is patterned after the flood of Noah because at Noah and his family, they go into the ark. They're sealed into the ark by the Holy Spirit. They survive the judgment waters and then they come out of the ark into a brand new world. And much like Jesus who died and was buried and rose on the third day, that's what water baptism symbolizes for us, that by faith in Jesus Christ, he died for us. And he rose for us so that we can have newness of life. With that, we see here that water baptism, it's the sacrament by which a person is fully submerged into water. 
It's also a spiritual sacrament that is not necessary for salvation because it's not, we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. And yet this sacrament symbolizes our union with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was a union that was formed at the very moment of our faith, but then publicly proclaimed through water baptism. Now this brings us to the final uh, section of this study. And so if you would, I'd like you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And as you make your way to Acts chapter 2, I just want to take a moment to ask the question, you know, who is water baptism for? Who is water baptism for? And the answer, according to Peter, is that baptism is for repentant people. Baptism is for those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's here in Acts chapter 2 where we find Peter, he's actually preaching the gospel to this crowd of people, and, and it's beginning here in Acts 2 verse 37. Here Luke tells us that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and, and what they heard was the gospel message. They heard the gospel message, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they've already heard the gospel, they've already been cut to the heart, that they're convicted about their sins, and they want to know what's the next step. Well, Peter says to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Peter says here, repent and be baptized, he, he was telling us that water baptism is for those who have been cut to the heart and have repented of their sins. Those who have received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ after being convicted of their sins and repenting of them should be then water baptized. He's not presenting a formula for salvation and saying, repent and be water baptized, and then together these things result in your salvation. That's not his point. Water baptism is for those who are convicted of their sins and repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the punishment that we deserve by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ should then publicly uh, reveal that faith through water baptism. This leads us to the next question, which is this, is, you know, how do we go about baptizing people? And in order to answer this question, let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. And as you make your way there to Matthew chapter 28, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the word baptism, it, again, speaks of immersion or submersion. So you're not going to get sprinkled. You know, th this is a full immersion underwater because that's what the word means. And not only do I baptize people through a full submersion uh, underwater, I also follow the formula that Jesus presents here in Matthew chapter 28. If you would uh, look with me there at verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I should first point out that when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, we should take a moment to just ask, who's the them? Who are the them being water baptized? Well, the disciples. The, the plan is to go make disciples. How do you make a disciple? Present them with the gospel message. 
lead them to a place of conviction and repentance. And as they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're immediately made disciples of Christ. Those people who are the disciples of Christ should then be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly how I perform baptisms. Fully submerging the, the, the disciple of Christ as I call upon the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In order to understand what this means, consider the command, stop in the name of the law, right? You know, when, when you say stop in the name of the law, you know, the, the, the officer who might say something like this isn't suggesting that there is a name for the law. It's like, stop in the name of the law. Well, what's the name of the law? George. You know, it's not, it's not like that. We're, that's not what we're talking about with the name of. In this context, the name of speaks of the character of or, or, or the intention of. Stop in the name of the law is, you know, stop according to uh, what the law requires. In similar fashion, you know, when, when I baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm baptizing according to the authority according to the character, according to the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there are those who say, well, you only have to use the name Jesus. You know, it's the Jesus-only groups, you know, and they'll go out and, and, and baptize just using the name Jesus. And granted, the name Jesus is the name above all names. But Jesus is not the name of the Father, Jesus is not the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the name of the incarnate Word of God, or the person we might call the Son of God. So to baptize in the name of Jesus only is to leave out the Holy Spirit and the Father. That's why I baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If I were to suggest that there is one actual name for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I would say it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. And the second person of the triune Godhead took on humanity, and the God-man's name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. But I believe that the formula being presented here is to baptize not in the name of, per se, but rather in the authority of. I have been commissioned and now have the authority of Jesus Christ to baptize people in the name of, or in the authority of, or in the character of, or in the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God whom we worship. And so those who are coming out to be water baptized You'll be fully submerged into water. And I will declare that I'm doing this by the power and authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus told me to do. To wrap it all up, then water baptism is the act of being fully submerged into water. It's a spiritual sacrament that's not necessary for salvation and yet it symbolizes our union with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's a symbolic sacrament that's performed on believers in the authority of the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. And so with that, that gives you what I believe to be enough information for you to understand what it is that you're doing when you come out to be baptized in water. And just with that, uh, I want to just take a a few minutes here to open up to any questions because uh, it's possible that uh, I've left something uh, unanswered uh, or, or maybe something